Hello, and welcome to another episode of Infinite Games, where every week we sit down with a founder, operator, or investor working at the edge of what's next. I'm Daniel Scrivener, and on the show today, I sit down with Robbie Bent, founder of Othership, which is building a network of physical locations that combines saunas and ice baths with guided group classes, as well as an app so you can do breath work anytime, anywhere. In this episode, we're going to go really deep on something we all do around 22,000 times per day, which is simply breathing in and out. It's something we're never taught, we aren't even conscious of, and yet the number one metric for determining health and lifespan is your lung capacity. That's right. And as you'll find out, this is just the tip of the iceberg. In this episode, we talk about how breathing regulates your mental and emotional states, and even how the mechanism for losing weight is expelling out CO2. We'll talk about how Robbie is building a company completely focused on community and building community through ancient practices like breathwork saunas and ice baths. In this episode, we'll explore everything you never knew about breathing, including how we've turned into a population of mouth breathers and why that's so bad and why breathing through your nose is so much better. We'll discuss James Nestor's book, Breath, and why it's so incredible. We'll go deep on how Robbie is building Othership, including both the physical location and app sides of that business, and we'll get a peek at the flagship location for Othership that Robbie and his team have been working on for the last three years. And finally, we'll talk about how a short four to five minute breathwork exercise can give you the same mental, physical, and emotional benefits as a 20 plus minute meditation. You can find the full show notes for this episode at outlieracademy.com slash 82, including links to everything we discuss. For more from Robbie, you can follow him on Twitter at RobbieBent1. And you can learn more about Othership by visiting othership.us or following othership underscore US on Twitter. With that, please enjoy my conversation with Robbie Bent of Othership. Robbie, I'm thrilled to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining me. Pleasure to be here, Daniel. You catching me? three years of work culminating in this week and so i'm just on a, on a wave of like excitement and gratitude and so really pumped to share our story today so we're going to spend the majority of this episode talking about what you're building at othership and it's fascinating because it has a digital component it's basically breath work that you can do in an app and then it has an irl component and we'll talk about what happens at each of those and how those connect before we get too far you also just have a fascinating background so i wanted to see if you can share just at a high level a quick sketch of your journey leading up to founding othership or just what you did before Absolutely. And I'll kind of just get really high level and then you can double click on parts you want to go into. And so high achiever, young age, feeling like, oh, I need to go to the best school. I need to have this job and I need to be successful or I'm a nobody. You know, this idea of your whole life is driven by how successful you are, your job title, the money you make, the things you have, what your parents think of you. And so that led to investment banking. So my dad was in business and I went to school and was like, oh, I just want to be do what the smartest kids do. And it's banking and that's how you make money. And that's where you find happiness. And I went from there to startups. And then I was like, oh, I'm going to shortcut this 10 years of grinding and like quickly build this company and be rich and famous and like a very shallow, shallow <laughs> goals. But uh, at a young age, it was just like, yeah, I want people to like me. I want these nice things. And, you know, built a startup and like somehow through like sheer force of will was able to raise 25 million bucks and grow that business and actually release a product. But the business failed after four years, like completely lost everything, went through a period of complete decline, living in my parents' basement, couldn't afford to go for dinners with my friends, like feeling like a total loser, especially because all those things were at least material and like shallow needs were so important to me. Cue like rock bottom, time for change, Tim Ferriss, podcast, meditation, 
Vipassana retreats, psychedelic medicines, self-worth, moving away to Israel. And through that, learned a lot about myself, which we can get into. Then got into like, okay, I'm going to go where like the smartest people I know are. And luckily enough, learned about Ethereum really early on. So joined the crypto ecosystem when Ethereum was, you know, six bucks and moved to San Francisco, worked for the foundation on grants and ecosystem support and a whole bunch of cool projects. And my life really, really changed. So in that period of self-reflection, I struggled with addiction also in the past. And so use that to get sober. I've been sober for six plus years. It's a big part of my identity now. And took that like meditative, psychedelic, what I had learned into Ethereum and found financial success, met my wife. And so in a period of like two years, went from like parents' basement, like- Literal basement. <laughs> almost, yeah, like literal basement, dark, suicidal, watching Netflix, like fucking crying, like just like, oh my God, I'm never gonna, what am I gonna do? And really dark stuff. And yeah, went to like complete, energetic, positive, around smart people, financially successful, like just feeling- good about my skills and then went through another transformation to like, okay, this worked for me. How do I get other people into it? And then have spent four years iterating and testing side projects, trying to get people to feel more like themselves and help them. What I found was meditation psychedelics weren't accessible. And so I've created this entire platform to make like mental health and wellness accessible with the goal of like, we talked about helping people find meaning, helping solve loneliness. It's fascinating background, and I have so many areas I want to dive into, but I think the place to start, which is super obvious, is just as you kind of think back, because I, like you, I think everyone, at least the vast majority of higher achievers I know, I think start out, just as you describe it, just very shallow metrics, very shallow things that they're chasing after, because it's almost, they're chasing after the outcome. It's not really a journey. It's just like, I want this, and I'm going to be successful if I have these things. Let me get those things. What advice would you give to yourself if you could go back in time early on to try to help yourself think differently about it? Or do you think that you needed to have that experience and you needed to go through the full cycle? One is like, it would be hard to have said at that time, like, hey, you need to do X. Like, it's very hard to change. Everyone's sort of on a linear trajectory. And unless you go through something challenging or traumatic, which you don't really seek out, it happens by accident. You're not really forced to change. And an example of this is traditional career path, you know, maybe accounting, lawyer, investment banking. Careers are changing now. They're becoming much more fluid. But 10, 15 years ago, you know, you start out, you do two years as an analyst, you're an associate. And by the time 10 years go by, like the job you chose when you were 20, you're not the same person when you're 30, but it becomes so difficult to change because every year the incremental, like, oh, small bonus, work harder, like, okay, next year you get a 20% bonus. And then all of a sudden, it becomes very difficult to leave. And so the advice when you're young would be hard to, it's like the analogy of the frog in the boiling water, where it's just slowly getting hotter. And then I've just seen a lot of people. It's like, I'm 30, I'm 35, I'm 40. I'm like, I fucking hate my job. I don't know what I'm doing. How did I end up here? And I have regret. And so I just don't think I would have listened back then because it was like such a dramatic shock that happened that caused me to like, figure out something else. And so that's not really tactical advice, unfortunately, but I do have some tactical advice, which is the more I've gone down this path, the more I've authentically figured out who I am and what I liked and embraced that. And so in high school and elementary school, it's like, oh, I want to conform. Like, what are the other kids doing? You know, in university, like, I hope they like me. I want to fit in with the crowd. Oh, what do these people think about what I'm wearing? It's very awkward to be weird. And what happens is you put up boundaries. And as you get hurt, 
maybe you said something, tried to be a funny person in like grade three and someone was like, oh, you're never going to be funny. Like, shut up. You know, you had this moment of embarrassment. And so you put up these walls and like, as you grow through these like formative periods of your life, you put up more and more walls and you become further and further from your authentic self to avoid hurt, pain, embarrassment, fear. And so the advice I would give, no matter what age you're at, 18, 25, 35, is like, how do you find your authentic self? And these practices, breath work specifically, you know, meditation, psychedelic medicines, they help peel back yeah, therapy as well. They help peel back all these like kind of hurts, help you process them to find who you are. And so my advice is just really feel into your own authenticity and weirdness. And so if you were young and you wanted to like design cities or like create shoes or just do something fucking weird, like, you know, you read weird books. What was that? We help people a lot find this feeling of awe. What awe means to me is like childlike wonder. And so it was that feeling when you were 10 years old, like running through the forest and you know, you're on your bike and hitting jumps or whatever it was that really turned you on as a child and made you feel the sense of magic. It's like refinding that. And so that is my one number one piece of advice is just finding that authentic self by like getting rid of those barriers. This is fascinating. I want to talk for a second about Romely, which was that startup experience that you had. I think you built the company for four years, you know, raised 25 million. I'm sure the first couple of years of that were probably an incredible experience, feeling like you're on this exponential curve. But obviously, then at the end of the day, this doesn't work out. And I want to maybe give people a little bit more context before we ask for tactical advice. So what I was going to ask there is, could you talk just a little bit about what that company was? And then can you talk a little bit about that going over the cliff moment and what you learned from that or what you salvaged or what you took away? Oh my God, there's so many like <laughs> tactical learnings. And so the company was a, a global telecom platform with a hardware component. So it was basically like a sticker you'd put on your SIM card and it would fit between your SIM and your phone. And when you travel, the phone identifies what network you're on. So you're an AT&T subscriber, you go to Canada, you become a Rogers subscriber. And then the sticker, we would over the air provision a, a local identity. So it's like a Rogers identity. And then we would get billed by Rogers and bill you. So we were like a middleman that replaced roaming. And so there was like a hardware component. There was the software on the SIM card. There was the backend billing platform. There was the connections with all the carriers. And so at the time, it was awesome because roaming was like five bucks for a meg of data. People were like, what the fuck is a megabyte now? Like, that's nothing. It's like not even a third of a photo or something. And so... We would give these out. We had like these like really janky prototypes and we would give them out to super wealthy angels and they would go and fly and they would get a text message. It was kind of like a man in the middle. It wasn't really working at first. And so they would fly and they would get a text message from us and it'd be like, you just saved $900 on this phone call. And so these super wealthy angels would be like, holy shit, this is insane. Like everyone's going to use this. Like you can't even use your phone when you're traveling. And so that's what we used to kind of bootstrap money. And then the problem was we over raised and I just didn't know what I was doing. And so I was like, oh, you know, I'm living in Toronto. It's a hardware project. It's like 2010. So this is kind of like why Combinator is just becoming a thing. There's not like all these resources on entrepreneurship, like lean startup maybe isn't even out yet. And so I'm just on my own trying to figure it out. And it's like, coming from finance, like, oh, you know, the phone, it has to work in an iPhone, has to work in a BlackBerry. It's got to work for customers going to the UK and we have to have every country. And, and so we way overbuilt. And not only that, it didn't have to work everywhere also, but we like built everything from scratch. So we hired this huge team. We built like the software and the SIM. We built the billing platform, like all that stuff existed. So we should have just focused on the software and the SIM, single person in Toronto, customer going to the UK, and just like mastered that. 
and spent a fraction. We kept being like, we ran into this fallacy of once the system works, we're going to make money. Like if you build it, they will come. And so it was just like, oh, if we just added like cheaper pricing because we had more countries and if we just added more phones and total mistake. And so we got to this point where we'd spent so much money to set up the system. Like we were consistently raising money, like trying to build these complex products and just huge error that by the time it was like up and running, roaming prices had declined legit 95%. Wow. In two years, three years. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So that was a legit learning was like when you're competing, carriers use roaming as a profit center. For them, they could offer it, they use it as a loss leader. And so they were making a ton of money of it, but they can offer it for free and still make money on like their home. Like if you're an AT&T customer, they can make a ton of money off you and offer roaming for free. And so you're competing against something that their marginal cost is like almost nothing. So that was really tough strategically. I never really like thought through how fast that would happen. And then just like the biggest learning was like spending so much money without really doing like a proper MVP. Like we built out this crazy thing. We had it in Best Buy. I met with the president of Skype. I'm like, oh, they're going to buy us. Like I'm going to be rich. This is crazy. Because people would use the prototype and be like, whoa, this is cool. And we kind of diluted ourselves into like, because the prototype's cool, it's going to scale. And then you got it into customers' hands and like one out of 10 would break when they installed it. And so Best Buy is like, we're not going to sell something with like a one out of 10 return. And so we're like, oh, okay, all this effort on like that whole deal. And like, couldn't you have just tested it with 50 friends and like saw that that was going to happen? So tons of mistakes. And then I went and like, I was really nervous about, I don't know what I'm doing. I need like senior people, like gray hair people in the room. Another like huge mistake. And so those are people like now I always, if I'm going to do something, I get the best three people in the world. And I asked them like, how are you doing this? And I use my network. And that's like the golden rule of entrepreneurship is you help people and they help you back. And so it's so easy and like on deck or Y Combinator or Silicon Valley or any of these entrepreneurial hubs to get support and advice on something. And so I was like, oh, I need to hire these people. And so we hired somebody who had managed like an 8,000 person team at one of the big telcos. And you're bringing them into like a 10-person environment. And all of a sudden, that person's like, oh, we need to hire a head of marketing and a head of this and that. And you know, now we have 40 people. And like we're not even selling anything yet. And so just huge mistakes left, right, and center of like hiring the wrong people, spending way too much money, not focusing on product early. But it's funny because when it failed... I was like, oh, I'm useless. Like, what am I going to do? You know, I'm 28 and had to sell my car, move out of my place. I went from like living in this nice place in Toronto to like the small town Guelph where I grew up and live in the basement. And just like, I don't even have any skills. Like, what have I done for four years? I'm not an engineer. I'm not like a designer. I did this weird thing where I kind of raised some money and like hired some people that failed. And then it wasn't until I started the next thing where I was like, oh, I actually know what to do in situations. So you know, we're going to negotiate a contract. Well, like, here's how you do it. We're going to hire for a role. Well, like, okay, here's the best practices. We're going to raise money. Here's how you talk to people. And so all these little things you pick up as a generalist in your first time makes you way more likely to succeed in your second go. And now I'm on my like fourth or fifth. So I like really have, since that experience have added a lot more, but it's so interesting the first time how like much you don't know. And I, I just, when I started to, I didn't even know that I didn't know. It's like, yeah, I'm in, you know, I worked in finance. I could do this. Like, let's go. And it's just so dumb. 
I mean, I think it's wonderful that you're so open about that because one, it's absolutely true that you don't know what you're doing. And there's also no book that's going to teach you. One of my favorite quotes is there is no such thing as business school, meaning like there isn't generalizable skills. You know, like you talked about, there's at a lower level, generalizable skills around how to hire, maybe go and how and run, how and go and raise a round of financing, whether that's a seed or a series A. It's very different if, you know, there's no book that's like, here's how to not fuck anything up and build the perfect business you've always dreamed. Like you just have to get going and make some of those mistakes. I guess the question I would ask is, how does that now show up when you interact with other entrepreneurs? And what do you say maybe to first time entrepreneurs that you're talking with or that you meet or that are working with to kind of just set their expectations correctly about how to think about this? There's a few lessons. And again, I don't think any lessons generalizable, like in all situations, something can work and something might not work. And so here's a lesson I'll give that's not generalizable to all, but like it made a lot of sense to me. And so whenever I've tried to chase dollars in a quick period of time, it's like almost fucking impossible. You're going one, if an idea is very clear, it means there's going to be a lot of competition around it. And somebody that's better capitalized with more resources than you is going to execute. So when you put yourself in a short window, it makes it very hard to experiment. So there's two things that happen if you're just going after dollars. One is when things go bad, which most likely they do. I mean, maybe sometimes they don't, but in every company I've been in, there's like these hard times. It's like, what's going to carry you through? And so my business now, it's selling something that I did that transformed my life. And so for me to be in a sauna with somebody, and we'll talk about that and to guide through breath work, like that's what I do in my spare time. I like make breath work tracks because I fucking love it. And like, I get all my validation from hanging out with customers. So like love your customer and the problem you're solving. And it doesn't have to be like, not everyone's going to work on their passion, but you need to be excited about the problem you're solving day in, day out, or you just won't be able to stick with it. So that's a huge one. And then time for emergent behavior to come through, which is like, I think this is pretty misunderstood is that the initial, and this is why you have this concept of a pivot and people think like, oh, you pivot because what you're doing is not working and it's kind of real, but if you dig a bit deeper, why this happens often is because problems aren't super easy to find. And so generally the first problem you find actually leads to a much bigger problem and you only find that out. It's not clear, right? It's not transparent. And so you find that out by working with somebody. And so once you start working with customers and hearing their feedback, you're like, whoa, we're actually solving this thing. And this is like, majority of tech companies have like some kind of pivot or transition. It's because these big things are sort of under the surface. And so to do that, you need time to like experiment. And that's why a lot of companies start their like side projects, you know? So it's someone hacking away on something, they do a side project, they have this like unique insight, but you're never going to have that unique insight with a business plan and a whiteboard. So this whole idea, when I went to school in an MBA school, of like starting your business makes no sense. If I was an entrepreneur now and I was young, I would say like, okay, I'm going to pick something I'm like really interested in, in either the mission or the people or the problem. And I'm going to say, I'm going to do this for like three or four years. And I'm going to work on it for free around people that are really, really good. And I'm going to just put out side projects and like try to spend as little money as possible, not need money and just be around. And so I actually did this with crypto and it paid back the dividends like massively. And so I think that's like a good place to start. If you're like looking for ideas, it would be like join discords, join DAOs, watch what's happening and like wait hack on little things and then let emergent properties 
happen. And so an example for me, I'm kind of rambling now, but I just like this thread a lot, but an emergent property for me here was, okay, I love saunas and ice baths. It's what I do because I'm sober. Like let's build an ice bath in my backyard. I'm going to have my friends over. Okay. This is dope. Oh, guess what? This isn't really an ice bath for health. It's actually an onboarding into meditation. Well, that's kind of cool. Maybe we'll make meditation classes in the hot and cold. And then it's like, well, you know what? This isn't even really meditation. It's about like connecting people and all of a sudden people are dating that met here and like they're getting married and like these people are going on a trip and only meeting one time and people are crying and it's like whoa you know what i actually think we can solve loneliness with this thing so it's just like as you emerge like i never would have thought that a bathhouse for me it was around longevity because i'd heard around patrick and now what we're building is like this platform to solve loneliness and like increase connection and so it's just an example of having two years to kind of iterate and test and like a customer base will always like emergent properties will come for something new. Yeah. I love that idea of kind of allowing time for emergent properties. And and the last question I'll ask, and then we'll jump into other ship and all the different aspects of what you're building there. But the last question I was asked there is you talked about a little bit ago, you know, at Romley taking the, if you build it, they will come approach. And one of the things I've noticed is, um, even if you don't think you're doing that, most companies are taking that approach, meaning it's less about exploration and it's less about trying to learn. And it's much more about here's this thing we've all visualized. Now let's just put it into the world. And so I guess what I would ask is, because what I haven't ever heard is another short, quippy, here's what you should do instead. So everyone kind of knows you shouldn't do the, if they build it, they will come. But I feel like then there's not a, (laughs) what is the path to follow? So I just want to ask your take, is that waiting and kind of spending a lot of time experimenting and hacking and waiting for emergent behavior? What's the other side of the build it and they will come coin? I think it's like understand the problem, which is hard, but it just like Steve Blank, I think it is. And he's like, get out of the building. And all these engineers are like, oh, I don't, why this, if this, you build it, they will come as people like to build. And so a lot of people are, or have been, maybe that's changing now, but we're shy. And so to go and like talk to people and ask them about their problems, it was like, I'm going to build something I think I want. And so the opposite of if they build it, they will come is actually like talking to people before you build. And an example of this, there's this book, not the lean startup, but there's like a tactical book called running lean. And he actually writes the book by like, he has these like little weekly powwows where he just does one chapter. And then he asks the people, how did it go? How did that chapter go? And he finds out what the next chapter should be. And he designs his book in that way. And so if you read that book, it gives you a really good framework. So maybe we call it like the running lean approach is the exact opposite of if you you build it, they will come. And it's really talking to your customers, understanding their problems first. Yeah. And I'll give just one example because I think a lot of people will get that idea. One way I've tangibly seen this in a bunch of founders that we've looked at and invested in recently is honestly just asking questions around how many customers have you talked to and how often are you interacting with them? And what you typically find is one, the founders that I think have products that just feel amazing or growth curves that are just working really well, they spend a outsized amount of time talking with customers. And I mean, even just a data point, like before we started building, we talked with a hundred potential customers. I think, you know, really is polarizing where the vast majority of companies don't do that. So anyways, I think one metric there would just be spend more time upfront talking with customers and then make sure that that's on your calendar every single week is a recurring thing. A really interesting thing on that one is that like an underappreciated point is that's going to help you identify the problem, but it's also going to help you identify the language which you're going to use for marketing. And so Sam Korkos, you should definitely have on the show if you haven't from 
levels, CEO of levels. He actually did like a thousand customer interviews. And from that, it's like, I know the exact pain point. I know my segmentation. I know my language. So when I go to do ads, like the best ads are like, you're not even talking about the solution. You're just talking about the problem, like very, very specifically, very, very tight. So you hear that and you're like, oh, that's me. I have that problem. Like, yeah, I want it fixed. And so customer interviews are important for not just problem solving, but also for language. Yeah, that's really well said. So I want to talk about Othership. And I thought one maybe interesting way to get into this would be talking about your early experience with Vipassana and meditation and a meditation retreat. And I know from just doing a little bit of research on your background, you had this really profound experience in Israel. Could you just talk a little bit about how you got introduced to meditation? And then we'll talk about how you then move from meditation into what you're building at Othership. Absolutely. So always interested in consciousness, did my high school thesis project and we put not like serious into meditation, but would use headspace, you know, would hear on these productivity things, especially when I was going through that dark time I had mentioned, I was like really a lot of Tim Ferriss, which like shout out to him for our work week and for our body and tools of Titans and all these things really helped me change. And so that's where I heard like, oh, I got to be like all these high achievers and like meditate. And, you know, so I got super into it and I went over to Israel and I was going to come home for break, but I had no money. And so somebody I'd met at a nightclub was like, oh, you meditation, like you don't really do meditation until you've tried this thing. And so I kind of looked at it. I had a friend who'd done it as well. I called him and instead of going home over the new year's and Christmas, I just decided like, I'm going to do this thing. I want to change my life. I'm interested in what's going to happen. So a Vipassana meditation is 100 hours of meditation. It's 10 days. It's 10 hours a day, a very strict schedule. You wake up at 4.30. It's complete silence. It's like very, allows you to get into a, a shifted state, a shifted nervous system state, basically. And as a result, like imagined doing Headspace 10 minutes a day. It's basically two years of that in 10 days. And so you think like, oh, it's crazy. But in the reality is if you want to feel feedback from meditation, like I have friends who meditate every day for a year and are like, I don't know, kind of feel it. I kind of don't. It's hard to like continue this practice because the feedback is quite long. So it's almost when you do that 10 days, you have evidence, like real hardcore evidence. You felt it, experiential evidence. That's what I was looking for that like, wow, this is powerful and it's worthwhile. And so that experience for me was the first time, like a lot of the stuff I'm sharing, and I love being vulnerable and sharing like, yeah, I was not a great person. I had done these things I'm not proud of. I'd had failures. I struggled with drugs. I love, you know, I was, yeah, like trying to, I didn't have a lot of self-love and I love to share these things, but I didn't really know them when they were happening. It wasn't aware. It was just like, oh, this is normal life. And it was meditation that sort of helped me start to be aware of like, oh, I'm not feeling a lot of self-love right now. I'm trying to soothe that with success to like please my parents or I'm trying to feel like women like me by having nice things. So I feel good about myself. So just stuff like those thought processes happen subconsciously. So I found meditation was really powerful for like understanding yourself, how you think, right? When you get triggered, why you get angry, like really looking into your emotions. And I'll leave it on, if I asked you right now, like how did you feel today? What emotions came up? 95% of people like will not be able to give you an answer. Be like, oh, maybe I was angry. Maybe I was grumpy. Like they don't understand how they're feeling. And it's just because the thinking mind is like all the time. What do I have to do? What do I have to do tomorrow? What's this person thinking about me? It's just nonstop. And so meditation gives you a space to kind of pause and like notice how you're feeling. When you got to the end of those 10 days, you know, you talk about a shifted nervous system state. 
What does that feel like? What did it feel like in your body? What did it feel like in your mind? And you could also do like on day one versus day 10. But as someone who's never done that, I would love to do that. I'm curious, what kind of a change was that like? And then what is the state that you end at? It's so amazing. And there's many of these like transformative states. And so Tony Robbins, Landmark, Hoffman, Psychedelic Medicines, even like getting deep into like a sports training camp or like an Ironman, or if you're an artist spending a few days working on a piece of art, like they all are kind of shutting down the prefrontal cortex, the thinking mind, helping you get into the present. I lived in a cave for eight days in complete darkness last year. Is this a meditation retreat or is this something altogether different? It's called the dark retreat. And so that's a whole other thing. And I was just kind of curious to see what it would happen. And so I'm now like very curious about these things. Again, like you're meditating, but it's also the added factor of like complete darkness. And I, I wrote a post, which we can link in the show notes and we can talk more about that. But I think the difference, and again, totally subjective. This is just my opinion and people listening may be like, no, but so take it with a grain of salt. But for me, I'm just thinking all the time. And so when I get up, boom, phone, let's go. Okay. 40 emails, 15 telegram messages, Slack messages. Like I've got to get back to my team. I need to make everything happen. And then it's like, what about my food? Am I going to go to the gym later? What does my wife think about me? What do my parents think? What do I have this thing? You know, it's just non-stop worry, fear of the future, craving. It's like your mind is a wild animal. And then on top of that, if people are listening, they're probably high performance entrepreneurs. It's like, let's go coffee. You know, and then it's like, open the computer. I'm at my seat 12 hours a day, just like going, 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 trying to make something happen, which is fine. But what you're doing, you're stimulating your fight or flight response, like your sympathetic nervous system. And it's so overstimulated. So hundreds of years ago, what was an average day? It's like, oh, you know, sleep on the ground, wake up, fresh air, breathing slow, kind of relaxing most of the day. Then maybe I'll like go for a hunt, come back home. And like, there's no, you're not consistently stimulated and the stimulation now is so strong. Like if you watch Netflix, there's no commercials. It's just over and over to watch like TikTok. It's crazy. And so what these things do, they take away all stimulation. So imagine like these thoughts that you're running with all the time, they kind of run themselves out. So like uh, one analogy I've heard on the Aubrey Marcus podcast, which I like is like your brain has 200 tabs open and there's just so many things going on all the time. Right. And so imagine just slowly how good it would feel to shut each 200 tabs reboot your computer and open it in a way that's fresh. So when you're doing that, you're just focusing on your mind and body. It's hard. Like you're at points where like you're physically uncomfortable, your body is aching, which I was actually shocked by how physically demanding it is. And every time I'm like, oh man, this is like so hard. (laughs) It just allows you to kind of shut those tabs off and start to notice that like you're not in control of your thoughts. And it's one thing to say that, but by just focusing on the time, you start to realize like, oh, I'm not. So maybe I can just like, let go. So you're sharpening your awareness, you're feeling into emotions, you're processing them, letting them go. You're like learning things about yourself. You're having vivid, vivid memories. Like it almost is like watching a movie of your early life, which can be like really beautiful. And then when it ends, you just feel so focused and present. And like, there's probably things happening neurologically in the nervous system from just lack of stimulation, proper sleep, healthy food, perfect breathing the entire day. Like there's so many things happening that are good for the body and mind in addition to the meditation. It's like a timeout, a complete reset, a way to better know yourself. And that's kind of what I had suggested if my recommendation was like, find, figure out your authentic self. And this is like a way to do them. Yeah. It might be super weird, but it almost, you know, in some ways seems like 
just in daily life with all the stimulus, with all the directions you're pulled, all the thoughts that are rushing through your head, this concept of quantum entanglement, of like these two things being entangled. And it seems like as you describe that, it's like over those 10 days, you become more entangled into the present moment, (laughs) as opposed to being pulled everywhere else into your past and your future and all these other things. It sounds really interesting. So then take us back to three years ago. What did you set out to build at that point in time? And how did that evolve? I noticed a few things, like two major problems. And so I had this, like, we'll call it a transformation. I mean, it's not a spiritual word. It just means like behavioral change. And so that behavioral change was like, I quit alcohol. I quit using drugs. I started to feel like self-love. And, and so, okay, well, how did that happen? And I thought it was psychedelic medicines and meditation. And so I started trying to teach people that just because I'd now found success at Ethereum and was like, yeah, I want to help others. This is working for me. Like, I got to share it. You know, I'm that type of person that's like high energy. Like, I want to share. And so I'm teaching friends meditation. I'm sending them to retreats. I'm like sending, you know, friends to psychedelic medicine retreats. And I'm not really seeing the change happen. And I realized there's like two major problems for like creating behavioral change. And like one is, the first is like, there's just a ton of friction. Like for you to get into meditation and you almost have to do this 10 day retreat and everyone's like, are you fucking crazy? Like, there's no way, no way I could do that. So, okay, that's a non-starter. And I have like 200 friends, maybe like three did it or like developed a practice. I was like, okay, that's not great. And psychedelics the same. It's like, okay, it's illegal. Where do I do it? It's scary. This is weird. And it's becoming more and more normalized every day. But seven, eight years ago, it was like, what are you talking about? Like you're going to do more drugs to quit drugs. Like this doesn't make any sense. So I got to that point is like, there's a ton of friction in prep. And then the other problem was when people would do these things, there's a ton of friction in maintaining the change. And so you have a transformational experience and anyone who's done a Tony Robbins or a landmark or one of these things, you come back and you're like, I'm on fire. I fixed everything. I'm ready. Like I'm perfect. I'm in love. I, my life is great. Like let's go. And that's why the problem with psychedelics, you hear so many people like plant medicine changed my life. And like, yes, it did for that moment and for a little while after. And I, I really look at this as a tool to jumpstart behavioral change. But if you don't have the system around it, like majority of my friends were like, how'd you quit drugs? I'm going to go. They come back like three weeks later, you know, doing drugs again. Cause you come home, same friend group, same work, life balance situation. A lot of the same thoughts. Exactly. Exactly. And so that was a problem I set out like, huh? How can I either get more people into this or help them maintain their gains? And so without really trying to do this, we've now like built a system that actually solves both of those problems. And so like, what does that system require? Well, the first is that there's really tight feedback. And that's where we came up with this idea of like peak experiences. And so our mission statement, one, our like goal is to solve loneliness as measured. So why is that important? So there's like a loneliness epidemic right now. And I'm going through this really fast so we can like double click in, but there's basically a loneliness epidemic where people's, the amount of close friends they have for the average person used to be three, two to three, it's 0.8. So in North America, the amount of close friends someone has is less than one, which means many people don't have like one close (laughs) friend. It's 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 insane. It's insane. And, And they said like loneliness is as harmful as smoking 15 cigarettes a day in terms of like inflammation and stress in the body. So like we need connection to survive. So that's like the overarching problem. Like how do we solve that? And we solve that by helping people find meaning and belonging. Okay, so how do we do that? So we've created this tagline like peak experiences that inspire awe and belonging. It seems like, oh, well, you have this app, this physical space, but we're building these peak experiences. And the idea was like, 
They have tight feedback. That's what a peak experience is. It's like a breathwork session, crazy dark sauna with music, an ice bath, things that are changing nervous system state. And in that state, you're allowed and able to process emotions. And by processing those emotions, you find these like experiences of awe. And then we do it all in the group. So like you're building community together. And so that was sort of like the mission that came to us, but it didn't happen overnight. Like it just started as I was going to bathhouses. Well, before I get into that, is there anything you want to double click on there before we like talk about the products? I have so many questions, but I want to hear the rest of the story. So, so continue on going to bathhouses. <laughs> yeah. So that's where it was at. Like I'm at Ethereum. I love bathhouses. I'm sober. So I'm going into the sauna and the ice bath and I'm like, whoa, this is, you know, insane. Like we've got 40 people here from a conference. Everybody's loving it. It's like, I'm waking up the next day. I feel amazing. And so then I'm like, I want to build one of these things. And so I want to use it at my house for benefits. And I read all the Rhonda Patrick studies. Like this is pre, before Huberman was out with this podcast, but like Rhonda Patrick had like this amazing reference of all these cold research papers. I read them all. I did the Wim Hof training. I went to some of his events and I just built this ice bath in my backyard with my wife and like some of our best friends. And we had people over every night because we're like, this is fucking cool. And so we'd had a fire in the backyard and people would hang out and we'd go to the neighbors like, yo, come. And then we had a WhatsApp group and people started being like, I want to come use the ice bath. I'm like, okay. So, you know, I come out for a coffee in the morning. There's four people out there hanging out, just doing it. Like, oh, this is cool. So it becomes winter. And so in the winter time, we convert my garage into, we bring the ice bath into the garage. We add a sauna, tea room. We're like, whoa, this is like, I think we could charge for this. And so we start to have neighbors come by and just through word of mouth, it grows to 2000 people like on this residential street, just showing up into this garage, which is like insane. And then, you know, there'd be six people, seven people, and maybe we're like, oh, you know, let's turn off the lights in the sauna and like try something. And my partners are world-trained sauna masters. We all have background in psychedelics and meditation. So we started taking stuff from therapy and coaching and breath work and all these modalities and like combining them, mixing and matching just to see what stuck. And that's when things went nuts. You know, we'd have 45-year-old lawyer example, like imagine person, you know, who just cares about work, like loves work, always on their phone super pumped about like success, succeeding, making money. A lot of ways like I used to be and, you know, comes in the ice bath, like kind of skeptical, gets in, we're guiding him through a meditation in the ice bath, remembers about his daughter and his daughter's birthday and how he missed it, starts crying and just like comes out. It's like, hey, this is the first time I wasn't thinking about work and I was able to connect with my emotions like in years. So like, holy shit, this is powerful and it's in a way that's like cool and fun so it's not like come and talk about your feelings it's like come to this cool space feel good it's amazing for your health and for longevity but then there's something deeper and all that that's you know as we talked about it's an emergent property and so from that we're like okay let's build like a real space around this and so we designed over the last year and it just opened last weekend which is why i mentioned it was a big week 50 person sauna four ice baths tea room feels like you're in a Soho house in terms of like the environment, but then there's classes. And so in the sauna classes, like, you know, we're doing one tonight in two hours, which I'm stoked about uh, called the warrior class. It's about finding your personal strength. So you're in the sauna, super hot drums. People are playing drums like, and it's like, imagine yourself, you know, when you were brave, like feel into that. And we're getting people to use their voices and like yell and scream together, do things that are a bit uncomfortable, but because the cold and the hot, you know, they, they increase your neuropinephrine, it's a neurotransmitter responsible for mood, attention, vigilance. You feel it's adrenaline shot. You feel alive and ready to conquer your anxiety, which is what people usually use alcohol for. So it's a class-based system where you can learn about really feeling into your emotions in a new way that's like cool. 
And then at night, it's a social, it's a hangout. And so instead of going to a bar or alcohol, you come here, there's like awesome elixirs and it's a longer session without guidance. It's just kind of like people hanging out. So I think it's like, you know, I mentioned those problems we're solving is you do the ice bath, you do the sauna, you start doing breath work and you're now onboarded into like, wow, wellness, mental health is important. And then you're coming back from a transformational experience. You have your community, your place to hang. There's no alcohol. Everybody's on the same path. So that's really the goal is to create this system that allows people to make behavioral change through peak experiences where they can inspire more awe and belonging. And so that was the physical. So I can stop there. And then I can also chat about how the breath work came because there's almost two separate businesses. Yes. And I want to get into that. So just on the physical space, I mean, things that are fascinating about that is in a lot of ways, you know, Starbucks used to have this line of creating the third location where it's not home, it's not work, it's the third place you can come. And I might be butchering that terminology. It's kind of loosely my reference. I love the idea, especially someone who's midway through my life. I know no longer want to really go to a bar or I no longer want to go to a nightclub, but I think going and spending time somewhere like that, where it can both be an inward journey, but I can also meet amazing people and, you know, do something with my body and leave feeling like I took care of myself and spent time with some amazing people. And the goal is just to share this, you have this initial location. What are your ambitions in terms of how to scale that? Or how does it go from this one location into something that is more broadly accessible? So I think this idea is like so fresh and new. It doesn't exist in North America. Like bathhouse certainly exists. Fitness exists. Meditation exists. But the idea of tying using the bathhouse as the atomic unit and then tying emotional training into this, it's almost like you're paying $30 and getting a therapy session without having to be vulnerable to an individual at like half a tenth of the price point with a bunch of friends. So the idea is like, we're the first emotional regulation classes in the world. So it's like this cool place you can go hang out, feel into your emotions in a way that feels like, whoa, like I'm almost like going to a fitness class or, you know, I'm having that level of fun. So we're like, this is big. This is a huge idea. It can exist in every city. There's not even one of these that exists yet. So we raised venture funding. It was very important to me to have a community backing the project because it's a consumer brand. You need a lot of people involved that like buy into the mission of like solving loneliness. And so uh, we raised from 70 angel investors, a number of VC funds. And so we now are funded to expand. And so Toronto was the pilot. It's working extremely well, even though we just opened last weekend, like, you know, thousands of customers, lineups, people, it's like people crying. We have like a metric of how many people cried in certain classes. That's how powerful it is. It's like, I was never interested in building a business for money at this stage. It's like, I want to build like these products. I actually have like, I don't know if this is recording, but like I have the logo tattooed all over my arm of like all the logos. Cause that's like how cool the brand is to me. I think of this as like a Nike instead of, I think of this as like a mental health clinic that I'm going to. So yeah, the plan is to expand in New York and Austin, hopefully by the end of this year, build community and to build community in these places. We actually do breathwork concert tours in advance to like get emails that are pretty cool, which I can talk about. But the goal for me in five years is like one of these in every city, a world-class app, because it's not enough to just have the physical space. You need space each day to turn off the fight or flight, as I had mentioned, and like create space to process emotion. And so that's the where the breathwork app comes in. And then there'll be a discord to connect people from across spaces people that are using the app with the physical spaces. And the idea is that you can build your entire community around this brand with like a daily practice and then a weekly practice. And so that's the vision. 
I want to talk about the app and there's a bunch of stuff to discuss, but I mean, just really briefly, maybe I'll set it up and you can try to push back on anything that I get wrong or add on to it. But when you shared this with me, I think we initially talked maybe a month or so ago and I tried the app and I have someone as well too, who's I've tried 10% happier. I've tried Headspace, which I really like. There's no shortage of, I think, incredible apps now in the kind of meditation space, but I had the same general issue, which is I feel like time is incredibly precious. I've got two young kids. So at night, it's not really like take care of myself time. Let's <laughs> go home and take care of the kids. You know, same thing in the morning. And so it's challenging to find time to meditate. And I think I ultimately just was never able to get into it. But one of the things I immediately realized when I did the first breathwork session, which I think was just four minutes in Othership, was literally in four minutes. And the way I have typically thought of and used meditation is a lot of it is just to, if I feel like my mind is in overdrive or I feel that fight or flight, or I feel a lot of anxiety using meditation to try to get myself, try to feel in control and try to get myself back to a place that feels good. I felt like I could in four minutes with simple breathing, I could do previously what it would take me like 20 to 30 minutes with meditation, which I thought was really profound. So talk a little bit about the app. And I think we start to get into a little bit of why breathing and why the focus there. Absolutely. And so, I mean, you're breathing 25,000 times a day. If you stop breathing in a matter of minutes, you'll die. It's like the atomic unit of what we need to survive. And so most people breathing patterns as per James Nestor have changed significantly. 90% of people have breathing dysregulations, which you can test pretty easily, but our environments have changed. As I mentioned before, fight or flight is always triggered. And when fight or flight is triggered, it's like you look at that Slack message, you get nervous, your heart rate increases, you start breathing from your chest, you're turning on the fight or flight part of the nervous system, right? When you're eating acidic food, so your Uber Eats before bed, you need to correct your pH balance. Your body becomes more alkaline by breathing out more carbon dioxide. So you overbreathe through your mouth again. And so changes in our diet, our sedentary nature, our stimulation have really destroyed breathing patterns and why that's a problem because it determines how much oxygen is actually absorbed in the tissues and brain. So it can affect like if you're having problems sleeping, if you're having problems with energy and fatigue, problems with anxiety, a lot of times it can be you're over breathing and simply like holding your breath can make a huge change in those things. And there's just massive amounts of people reporting issues with anxiety. So that's one thing. It's just like most people are breathing poorly now more so than ever. Now, the second is like, you know, we talked about meditation and its challenges. Meditation is really about awareness, as I said before, kind of watching your thoughts, what's happening in between your thoughts. Breathwork is changing your nervous system state. Through your breathing, you can control digestion, circulation, immune system response, emotional response. And so it's using music and breathing and certain patterns to change state. And many people are like, I don't really know how to look at my thoughts. It's a difficult thing. Like, I'm just thinking nothing's happening where everybody knows how to breathe. And so you mentioned like in four minutes, you can change your state. And what do I mean by that? So there's really three things we use breathwork for. One is like, call it up. And we've made it super simple to use on our app. And in under 10 minutes and under five minutes, you can go up. So think of that as pushing the gas pedal on the nervous system. You can think of it as like, I need a coffee. I'm procrastinating. I want like a boost of energy. I want some inspiration. I want to create. Bam, you go up. People know that as like Wim Hof, holotropic, transformational. There's plenty of names for this breath of fire, but it's, it's just turning the nervous system up. Second is turning the nervous system down. And so, you know, that's moving into the parasympathetic rest and digest state. That's the state we're in when we're eating food, we're cuddling, we're eye gazing, we're having sex, like all these beautiful things where we find meaning and emotion. And so this is the state where 
high-powered entrepreneurs are like, I've totally left this state for dead. And so this is like coherent breathing, box breathing, long, slow exhales. And so one example, we'll just do it now, is if you put a hand on your, your belly and chest and you just do a nice slow breath in through the nose. And a nice long exhale, six, five, four, three, two, one. And you notice <laughs> the long, slow exhale, when you're breathing deep into the lungs, there's the nerves that trigger the parasympathetic nervous system to turn on. So that long, slow exhale and breath retention, so slow breath holds. If you're ever having a panic attack, the best thing you can do is just like long 10, 15 second exhales for three breaths and little holds, five second holds at the bottom. And you can do that in, you know, 60 to 90 seconds and totally change your state, your nervous system state. And so we're teaching people to go up, to go down. And then the third is like explore. And this is when if you go up long enough for more than 10 minutes, I was telling you, we'll do a session at the end of the show that's maybe like a mini up that's kind of 10, 11 seconds that, that we can share. But what you're doing, your blood vessels are constricting and you're slowing the flow of oxygen to the brain. And as a result, the prefrontal cortex, the part of the brain responsible for the executive function, this thought process, like and why meditation can be hard is, you know, you stop and it's just thoughts and thoughts and thoughts and your mind's going crazy. It provides space from those thoughts. And when that part of the brain is shut down, emotions tend to come up and be processed. And so we call that explore. And that's like having an anti-anxiety or a MDMA or a psilocybin or some type of like mini psychedelic experience that's going to get you to feel and release. And so I had people doing these that, you know, wouldn't leave their house for six months during COVID, like not even like to go to the door, to open the door, to order food. I did some of our fear release breath works over a period of six weeks. And then boom, I'm like going outside. I'm getting people calling me crying like, oh, for the first time, like I've conquered my fear. So it's really beautiful. Those sessions for grief, a breakup, job security, any type of like fear and challenging emotions that are sort of stuck. You can think of those as, you know, you're shutting down this like executive function of the mind that doesn't want to be hurt. That's always on. And you're allowing yourself to process these emotions can often be super pleasant as well. So you really have all breath work really boils down to our breathing is fucked. <laughs> it's impacting everything you do in your life. And we can change that by going up, down when needed or explore. And so that's sort of like the triangle why you might want to use breath work. And then it's accessible. It's fun. The other cool thing we do is you mentioned being busy. And so, you know, for me, when I shut my computer down end of day, first thing I do three minute down breath work on the app. And I go from fight or flight massively. Like we're doing this podcast. I got to be on, I got to say all these things to like, okay, I'm now ready to go hang out with my wife and like watch some TV. You know, it's just like a transitionary period. It works before sleep. And the final thing we do that's cool is we have a lot of background breathing where you can use it while you're going for a walk or while you're cooking. So the idea is like you're driving to work. You have 10 minutes there. You're cooking up like a little sandwich. You have some time where you can do these breath works where you're also doing other stuff. As long as you're breathing properly, the state change will happen. It's really trying to fit it into your day. As you mentioned, it's like, yeah, you got two kids, you wake up, it's crazy in the morning. Maybe your only time when you're alone is like doing something else. It's so well said. And, you know, I think just a couple of things I would outline is the aha I've had since using the app. And I want to talk about the book in a second as well, too, because I think Breath by James Nestor is amazing. And I'm so glad you recommended that to me. But, you know, it's also just so simple because it's something you have with you all the time. I feel like with meditation, there's this idea you need to be seated. You need to be in a special place. It needs to be quiet. You know, there's all these special conditions. As you said, since reading the book and using the app, it's now something I think about all the time and it's starting to become on autopilot. And I think that that's been nice just to feel like one, and this gets back on this old gripe I have of like 
breathing now, especially after learning to use it. And also being like, why isn't everybody taught <laughs> how to breathe? Why aren't we all taught this? Why isn't this a part of K through 12 education? Anyway, so, so I'll just say that the, the, I want to talk for a second about breath by James Nestor, because, you know, as you talked about, there's some really interesting things in that book. I feel like the three lessons that I took away is we all need to be nose breathing and not mouth breathing. And if you actually pay attention, almost all of us mouth breathe. <laughs> and there's fascinating stories and historical perspectives around why nose breathing is really important and how it actually is a skill that we've basically lost and we've kind of forgotten. That's one. I think the second one is just this idea as you talked about, it's fascinating to me that you calm your body down by basically ramping up the CO2 in your body. So you take short breaths, you hold, and then you do really long, slow exhales. And it's data point in the book is, and this was something that it was an aha moment for me, but typically you think about breathing, you're like, oh, I just need to breathe more air. So when I breathe, I'm doing massive breaths in. And what's fascinating about the book is it talks as much about the value of actually that we are over breathing and we're over oxygenated and we actually need to have more CO2 in our body, which is holding and breathing out more. So those are a handful of things that stuck out to me. What would you add on to that? Or what other things just in breath by James Nestor, what do you feel like you took away or was an aha moment or insight? Those are both really interesting, right? And so on the second point, you think of your lungs like a glass of full water. So when you're breathing in, like you're always 98% saturated with oxygen. So the issue isn't like, I need more oxygen. I'm always full for the most part, unless I'm like heavily exercising and my oxygen requirements go up, but I'm always full. So, and there's also excess oxygen, usually 25% in the lungs per breath. So you can think of like your glass is full, you're pouring more oxygen inside. So where the impact comes is when you start mouth breathing, you can think of your blood vessels like little boats and they're taking that oxygen from the lungs to like your brain and these other places that need it. And without enough carbon dioxide, imagine the boats, like the doors don't open. And so you can't actually get the oxygen you're breathing in, into the bloodstream, into the tissue, into the brain. And that's something like nobody understands. Right. And so it's actually, you mentioned, you listen to a therapist and they'll be like, Oh, take a big deep breath in to like, to relax. And realistically, that's actually increasing your heart rate. And what you need to be doing is holding your breath on retention. So that's just, even just knowing that is like, Hey, if I'm panicking, like slow my breathing as much as possible. So I thought that was really interesting. The other interesting thing is like baseline, how awful our breathing patterns are and how society has changed that. And so really cool note, the biggest predictor of longevity in humans is actually lung health, lung size. Just fascinating. And I'd never heard that before, even as a stat ever <laughs> until reading that book. And there's all sorts of, I think just a couple other things I thought were fascinating just to encourage people to really, whether it's get the audiobook of Breath by James Nestor, read the book, but some of the stories that are shared there, I thought were just amazing. And one was just around why carbon dioxide is so important. And I think some of the stats that the mechanism by which you lose weight is actually by exhaling out, <laughs> which is fascinating. And basically carbon dioxide is kind of the conduit for your body to basically, for your metabolic kind of system to be able to work. And then just, it talks about how I'm blanking on the story, but there's a big portion about basically studying Native American tribes. And it's not just Native American tribes in the U.S., but basically Native people all around the world. And the fact that there was a massive commonality among all these distributed tribes. So whether you went to Africa and went to the Masaimara, whether you were in the States and you went to a Native American tribe where they all, one, knew the importance of breath and really emphasized it, but they would do crazy stuff like basically tape the mouth of a child closed to teach them to know the breathing 
series really early on, which I thought was fascinating. I would just really recommend it. I think it's an incredible book. I want to ask just a couple of closing questions. And one would be, so you've had these, you've had just a number of really incredible experiences, but you've obviously been on this roller coaster and you've been building and working in this direction for three years. And we just talked about, you had this massive breakthrough moment a week ago. What do you feel like the experience of working on other ship has taught you that might be applicable to somebody else? <laughs> Ooh, so there's like negative lessons, right? So one is pretty interesting in that. And so there's comparison and comparison is like a killer. And, and so I went from crypto where, you know, I was meeting with like Chris Dixon and Andreessen Horowitz and these big VCs and like working at Ethereum, I could kind of get intro to everyone I wanted. And, you know, a lot of my friends are becoming billionaires. And so now I'm in my backyard doing an ice bath with like a bathhouse hat on. And so kind of like, what am I doing? I'm in the big leagues here. I can like, you know, the ego would like look on Twitter and then I'd go in this whole realm of like, oh, I should have stayed. We were building this really crazy scaling solution. And now like layer twos are becoming a thing for people who are listening, like L2s they're called. And I was working on like the most prominent one. And so I'm like, oh, if I just stayed. And so even if you're doing something you love, which I am now, like I love it. Like this is me in a brand i've helped so many people like on the order of thousands of people like personal messages like yo man you changed my life and still i had that feeling of i'm not enough i should be doing something bigger and so i think when you're starting something new it's very insidious feeling of comparison and so as a lesson if you find yourself doing that you have to think about trade-offs because you'd look and be like oh well i would have been in crypto doing this but like what was my day-to-day like you know my day now i just designed this cool like warrior sauna class I'm going to go do later for like 50 friends and they're all going to be crying because they had an emotional experience like that is so cool. So I think that comparison is like a huge killer, especially when you start something new and when you notice that and that's what meditation helps with. You notice like, oh, I'm comparing and you short circuit and think about trade-offs. So that's definitely one. And then another one is balance, which I haven't quite figured out. And so there's two parts of me fighting where I still have like the same desire of like, I want validation. I want to build something big. I want to make a mark. I want to have an impact. And part of it is real where somebody comes in and I actually like make their day or help them with something. It feels amazing. It's like, wow, I gave back. That's great. But part of it is ego. And it's like, I want to make this huge fucking thing. And that part's not, not healthy. And so you know, I'm struggling with like just remembering to be in the customer's shoes because this really helps me and just focus on that because the ego can lead to like real imbalances, which I've been feeling, which is like, oh, we got to be first in the US. You know, we can't let somebody beat us. And we're like, we got to make five and like, we got to raise this money. And we not only that, but we're going to do a concert tour also. And, you know, we got to go harder and we got to go harder. And so I really struggle because I'm a, just an intense person with balance. And even if you're doing exactly what you love, which is what I'm doing, if you do it too much, it's not pleasant. You start to get stressed, you get worried. And this is, you know, seven years of work, personal work, many startups, therapy, coaching, all this stuff. And I'm still having these issues. So I think it's just very common as a last point on those is just like, yeah, it's okay. Like you're not going to be perfect. You're going to have struggles. You're going to have doubts. You're going to have fears. You're going to not be balanced at times. And it's fine. And so the other is just not trying not to have any judgment. It's just like, you know, love yourself. Self-compassion. Yeah, exactly. So that was a lot of lessons there, but hopefully that's helpful. No, those were amazing. And I want to ask one closing question. 
And then we'll tell people where they can go to learn more about Othership and, and follow you. On your Twitter bio, one of the things I like is you talk about, obviously, the problem you're working on, but you also ask the question, why? And then your answer to that is, of why you're doing Othership is to help people get as deep as they can into their own meaning. And so I want to just ask a question around that, which is for anyone listening, and honestly, I assume every person, if you said, are you interested in getting deeper into your own meaning, would say, absolutely. <laughs> help me figure out how to do that. What advice would you share with them. And this could just be, here's been my own experience, but I'm curious, you're clearly someone who I think much more than other people, myself included. You seem to have spent an enormous amount of time on this journey, kind of thinking about that. What advice would you have for other people that want to get deeper into their own meaning? Absolutely. And to me, meaning as defined is like these kind of moments of awe and belonging. And that's like what a life full of meaning actually is. And so to find meaning, we're using peak experiences. And why we're using those is because they're just like, I wouldn't say the shortest way, but they're definitely a way that you can feel there's something here to start this path to continue. And what it means is you're using the peak experience to short circuit the fight or flight response to build emotional resilience. And we talked about this the entire show. It's like, I'm always fight or flight. I'm crushing all the time. And that's like majority of people, even if like, you know, you're not crushing, but you're just on your phone all the time. It's the same thing. And in that fight or flight state, you're missing out on emotional feeling, emotional complexity, things you feel when you feel like deep love and satisfaction and, and presence. And so the first thing we're doing is peak experience to short circuit that to bring you into the parasympathetic state, learning through breath work, through cold response, through heat response, how to get into that parasympathetic rest and digest. And in that space, allowing you to have these moments of awe and to do it in community, right? And so to me, the meaning is like going into the space, sitting in an ice bath, thinking about what I want to let go of, really deeply feeling like self-doubt or comparison and just letting go of that, then telling the people I'm with about it and then like giving them a hug and hanging out and sharing. And that to me is finding meaning. It's really beautifully said. So I think the website where people can go would be othership.us. And you can also find the app store. I know it's on iOS. Is it also on Android? Yep. Okay. It's on Both. Android as well too. And I highly encourage anyone listening to download the app, even just to try it as if you already have a meditation practice, just try it. And at the very least, I think you will learn a lot about breathing that you can take out of it. At best, maybe it becomes a new thing that you think about daily. And it's something you can incorporate while you're walking, while you're sitting down at the beginning of the day, end of the day. And then I know people can also follow you on Twitter. I don't know how much you tweet, but at Robbie Bent one, which I love. Is there anywhere else you would point people? Definitely Twitter. I'm usually tweeting about like what we're doing. I'm always sharing like if we're doing events and like videos and stuff like that on Instagram at othership.app for the app you can follow. And then I think that's it. Yeah. I think in the app store, you know, one final point is if accessibility is an issue, if you're like, yeah, I'm an entrepreneur and I can't afford this, it's priced as a premium product, very similar to like Sam Harris, but we also want it to be accessible. So if you just DM me, my DMs are open on Instagram and Twitter and you're like, Hey, I can't, I can't afford this. I'm happy to gift the product to you. I love it. Well, thank you so much for the time, Robbie. This has been an amazing conversation. We've covered so much ground. Thanks, Daniel. Loved it. Awesome. Thank you so much for listening. For links to everything we discussed, as well as the full show notes and transcript, visit outlieracademy.com slash 82. At outlieracademy.com, you can also find more incredible interviews with the founders of Superhuman, Levels, Rally, Common Stock, and Primal Kitchen, as well as best-selling authors and many of the world's smartest investors. 
You can now also find us on YouTube at youtube.com slash outlieracademy. On our channel, you'll find all the full-length interviews as well as short clips from every episode, including this one. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn under the handle Outlier Academy. From our entire team, we hope you enjoyed the show, and we hope to see you right here next week on Infinite Games.